Our second reading comes from the book of Psalms, which I once heard described as the hymnal that Jesus grew up with. This is Psalm 65, and I invite you to really listen in for all of the, the pieces of this prayer of praise, this torrent of praise. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed, O you who answer prayer. To you all flesh shall come. When deeds of iniquity overwhelm us, you forgive our transgressions. Happy are those whom you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with deliverance, O God of our salvation. You are the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. By your strength you established the mountains. You are girded with might. You silence the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Those who live at earth's farthest bounds are awed by your signs. You make the gateways of the morning and the evening shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide the people with grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with richness. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The mountains and meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together with joy. This too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This psalmist was having a really good day. If you're a psalmist, your task is to compose poetry and song that speaks from earth to heaven. So you sit down at your scroll one day and you jot down the line, praise is due to you, O God, and wow, there it is, the primo thesis statement, so true as to be inarguable. I once heard an interview with Paul Simon, surely a psalmist of our time, and he described his goal, especially for the first line of a song, as being to capture deep truth. By way of example, there's the title track of his Graceland album, which opens with the lyric, the Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. <laughs> now, if you're riffing on your pilgrimage, to Elvis Presley's home in Memphis, Tennessee, and you come up with the Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar, you are home free. Well, it's a far deeper, deep truth that the psalmist nails in the opening line, praise is due to you, O God. I can't help but wonder how subsequent lines came about. I mean, was the psalmist in what we call flow state, where you are so frictionlessly in the groove that work just happens and is golden? Or was this one of those times when you bring forth a sudden burst of such profundity that you then just sit there, grateful but paralyzed, afraid to proceed for fear of messing it up? Praise is due to you, O oh God! What next? 
Well, however it came to pass, pass, the psalmist goes on to explain, expand, and illustrate that excellent thesis statement by heeding it, by offering praise to God, while also presenting proof of God's praiseworthiness. Listen to the psalmist sing to God. You forgive our transgressions. You answer us with deliverance, O God of our salvation. You are the hope of all the ends of the earth. Forgiveness, deliverance, salvation, hope. Praise is truly due to you, O God. And all creation gets in on the act as the psalmist describes God's treatment of the earth. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. Under such tender loving care, how could earth fail to offer the praise it was created to give, the praise of bringing forth joyful abundance? That's the praise that's due from earth to God. And the psalmist gives full attention to this call and response shaped relationship, cataloging the responses of the earth. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. That is how the land itself offers due praise to its creator. What about people? The psalmist writes rapturously of the earth's praise, but what does Psalm 65 tell of human response to our praiseworthy God? There are two declarations to God. To you vows shall be performed, and to you all flesh shall come. And then there's this. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. That trio of statements about humans offering praise to God, vows shall be performed, and to you all flesh shall come, and we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your temple. That trio pulls my attention to the parable that Jesus tells in the gospel passage that Carol read. Two men went up to the temple in the miniature drama that follows. A Pharisee lifts up how he performs vows to God, while a tax collector dares to believe that even he, despised collaborator with Roman occupiers, even he is part of all flesh, invited to come to God. And so it seems that both the Pharisee and the tax collector should be justified, blessed, and satisfied with the goodness of God's holy temple. But no, no, not according to the typical interpretation of that parable, no. We typically hear this parable as condemnation of a self-righteous Pharisee. And that may be what Luke intended. (laughs) But is that what Jesus intended? Now, I'm I'm sifting pretty finely here, but stay with me because I'm drawing upon the provocative work of Amy Jill Levine, a Vanderbilt professor of New Testament who is Jewish. Dr. Levine's scholarship excavates through 2,000 years of interpretation to edge us closer to hearing Jesus' parables as his original Jewish audience might have heard them. First, Levine strips away Luke's editorializing, 
and reveals the nugget of story that is the actual parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my income. But the tax collector would not even look up to heaven, just beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Luke has Jesus conclude, this man went away justified rather than the other. And just a moment, we'll examine the controversy of that line. But first, let's consider how each of these two characters is offering the praise that's due to God. The Pharisee praises God by fasting and by tithing and by lifting prayers of gratitude for his strong character. Now, he does judge other people, that tax collector over there, and that would have shocked Jesus' original audience, who would otherwise have held this righteous leader in high regard. But Dr. Levine argues that the Pharisees' words could fall into the category of genuinely acknowledging, there but for the grace of God go I. And the tax collector offers praise by knowing that God is great and God is good, by trusting God's mercy, by taking the risk of humbling himself. Both characters, then, are offering praise in their own way. So what about that concluding line that says, the tax collector was justified rather than the Pharisee? Well, the thing is that Greek prepositions are notoriously flexible, which is to say, baffling. This phrase is a prime example. Typically translated, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, the phrase could, really and truly, also be translated, this man went down to his home justified alongside the other, or even justified because of the other. According to Amy Jill Levine, the translations of alongside and because of make greater sense in historical context. You see, there's this Jewish tradition of the merits of others serving as sort of stockpiled aid for all. Dr. Levine explains, the idea is that even if we sin, and we will, the benefits of the good deeds of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the others could be transferred to us. Well, with his twice-weekly fasting and his giving a tenth of all his income, it's plain that the Pharisee has stockpiled an abundance of good deeds. So Jesus' original audience might indeed have understood that the sin-drenched tax collector could be the beneficiary of the Pharisee's stockpiled merit. In other words, the superabundant virtue of one person could save another, even someone reluctant to look up to heaven. And I know, I know, that's not nearly as satisfying as just condemning the self-righteous old Pharisee. And furthermore, it's just so outlandish. I mean, even within a parable, are we really supposed to buy the idea 
that the extraordinary goodness of one person can justify others, especially those who are as mired in sin as a tax collector? That's hard to believe, except, of course, that it's the story of Jesus. In his incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, Jesus is overflowingly abundant goodness and faithfulness and generosity. That is what we rely upon for our justification, for our salvation from sin. So maybe both the Pharisee and the tax collector were satisfied with the goodness of God's holy temple, each one of them heading home, shaking his head in grateful wonder and whispering, Praise is due to you, O God. When we take seriously, as did the theologians who led the church into Reformation 500 years ago, when we take seriously that by God's overflowingly generous grace, by the sacrificial death and death-defeating resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are saved from our sins Sins not that different from the sins of a prideful Pharisee and the sins of a greedy tax collector. When we consider that God's abundant mercy justifies us, surely we must join the psalmist and the overflowing pastures and joy-girded hills and flocks-clothed meadows and grain-decked valleys all shouting and singing together, praise is due to you, O God. Now, shouting and singing is not necessarily your style, and that's fine. Praise looks different depending on who is offering it. For the psalmist, offering praise is a matter of responding to God's goodness by writing words that millennia later still capture deep truth. For the earthly ecosystems cited in the psalm, praise is a matter of responding to God's care by producing fruitful abundance. For the Pharisee, praise is conscientious observation of spiritual disciplines. For the tax collector, it's standing on the promises of God. For our children's choirs, it's standing in front of all of us as worship leaders. What is it for you? How does each of us offer the praise that's due to God? Here at the start of commitment season, I'm pondering how money is part of how we offer praise. And since both of today's scripture readings mention the importance of the temple, I'll focus on this building. Maintaining this building, this temple, not only takes a lot of money, and believe me, it does that. Maintaining this building is part of how we praise God. This structure stands as a beacon in a neighborhood where innumerable lesser gods are jockeying for influence. And the activities that this property contains seven days a week mean that this place is part of the lives of who knows how many of God's children. This building's doors that open to everyone, everyone. These grounds that welcome Easter egg hunts and movie nights. The classrooms that house Sunday school and scouting, neighborhood meetings and addiction recovery, birthday parties and wellness classes. The steeple cross 
that directs yearning eyes toward heaven. All of that is how this congregation offers praise to God. And all of it requires pledges from all of us. I pray we never forget that praise is due to God and that praise has countless different expressions. And I pray that we are able to faithfully ponder how money, a concern of the Pharisee and of the tax collector, how money is part of offering praise to our praiseworthy God. Praise is due to you, O oh God. <laughs>